And then when I heard about this, I thought, yes, somebody's actually really made a significant progress. That was my first. And I was delighted because I didn't think this would, that we'd get quite this far in my lifetime. That's Dame Janet Thornton from the European Bioinformatics Institute. She is the former director of the European Bioinformatics Institute and has long worked on the challenges of protein structure prediction. She has received many awards, one of which is a British Order of Chivalry. For her services to bioinformatics, she was named Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire. I interviewed Dame Janet Thornton with David Jones of University College London, who has appointments both in computer science and in structural and molecular biology. I'll put, yeah, I'll put it down. I'll put my point as, as extreme, you know, I, I would say it, it's extreme cautious optimism, I guess. In terms <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> we talked about blobs, about models, about being compute constrained, and about what can happen when you are not compute constrained. And I asked them about AlphaFold, how this approach from DeepMind Technologies, an AI startup that Google bought in 2014, how DeepMind has changed and is changing the way protein structure is predicted and how it might change science more generally and what AlphaFold can and cannot do. You will hear more from Dr. Thornton and Dr. Jones in a bit. I interviewed them as I did a story for Nature Methods on the journal's Method of the Year 2021, which is Protein Structure Prediction Methods. You can find a link to the story in the show notes. I am doing a number of podcasts on this topic, too, in this series, Conversations with Scientists. Proteins are known from the food we eat. Many of us, too many of us, have encountered a protein that the virus SARS-CoV-2 uses to get into cells and unleash COVID-19. And it does so with harsh symptoms in people who are not vaccinated, whose body's immune system cannot recognize the protein or fight the virus well. There are many, many proteins. Our bodies contain, and this is an estimate, a few hundred thousand different proteins. It's hard to know the number for sure. Many proteins are unknown. Proteins come in many different sizes, fulfill many different functions. They differ from one another in their sequence of amino acids, the biochemical units of which they are built. And proteins have all sorts of twirls and curls. They have complicated three-dimensional structure that moves. Predicting protein structure from the amino acid sequence is an entire scientific field within itself called protein structure prediction. It's not a new field, but it's the 2021 method of the year because of what AlphaFold can do, which is it can yield the 3D structure proteins from a given amino acid sequence. There's a dedicated European bioinformatics AlphaFold database that is filling up rapidly. But isn't there already a protein database called the Protein Data Bank, the PDB? Indeed there is. And I spoke with one of the founders of the PDB about AlphaFold in a separate podcast. Back to Janet Thornton and David Jones. Every two years, there's a competition, the Assessment of Protein Structure Prediction, or CASP for short. It's a competition where scientists show what their software systems can do, how well they can computationally predict the 3D structure of a protein from a sequence of amino acids. At CASP 13 in 2018, AlphaFold did very well indeed. In CASP 14 in 2020, it blew the academic competition out of the water. 
My interviewees talk about this, and you will hear more in this podcast and others. Dr. Thornton and Dr. Jones have known each other a long time. Actually, David Jones did his PhD research with Janet Thornton. I interviewed them together, and they had a lot to say to one another also on the subject of AlphaFold. This podcast has stretches in which they talk to one another, and I was happy to just listen. But on occasion, I did throw in a question or two. I asked them what it was like for them when they first saw what AlphaFold can do. So I'll go first. I'll be the yeah. positive one, I think. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm trying, I, 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 we saw it at different times, but I mean, you, you saw it before I did and, and yeah. in different contexts. Yeah. So, uh... yeah. So I, I heard about it before it was published and saw some of the data um, because I was in sort of peripherally involved um, as an independent observer. And I was just delighted that progress had finally been made in a rather quite quite striking way. It, I'd been used to seeing the CASP results, and it had sort of gradually gone up, but actually rather slowly uh, over many years. Um, and it began to gather pace, I think, with the introduction of machine learning, probably in 2016, something like that. But this seemed to me to be a really clear-cut improvement for the first time, and that one team had made significantly more progress than the other teams, which again is unusual, because usually the increase happened across the board. Um, oh, I see, uh, right. It's a community uh, uh, competition, a community so to speak. So and mm. everybody is very close to each other because they all read each other's papers and they all know what's going on. And so it's quite a, a tight community of, of researchers who are, you know, most of them, I have to say, are really very clever people. People who do this in general are not second-rate scientists. They are the best of the best. And um, I'm not including myself in that, I hasten to add. This, these, are, these are people who really have been fighting with this problem for a long time. And so seeing this success was really very encouraging to me. Now, I've, I've, been, I've been aware of the problem, I guess, for 40, more than 40 years, and have worked you know, when I started, there were just 20 structures. And so we kind of took them apart and dealt with them. Um, so we looked at specific aspects of protein structure, whether it be alpha helices or beta turns or tertiary structures, and tried to somehow make sense of those by, <laughs> uh, you know, teasing apart the key factors that determine structure from sequence. But I realized sometime in the 1990s that actually I felt I didn't have anything more to bring to the field because I didn't have any good ideas about what to do next. And many students would come to me and say, I want to work on protein folding, including David, actually. <laughs> was, um, but he, he is, was the exception in that he was full of new ideas, whereas most students didn't have a clue about how they might improve 
this situation. And so um, I very happily went off and started looking at functions and uh, various other things um, and didn't really go to the cast meetings. But every year I would get an update from David about or every other year about, you know, well, what happened? You know, how, how did it go? Who kind of who won? Because that's always a question that people ask, although it's not supposed to be a competition. Um, but nevertheless, you know, how is it all going? Um, and then when I heard about this, I thought, yes, somebody's actually really made a significant progress. That was my first. And I was delighted because I didn't think this would, that we'd get quite this far in my lifetime. I'd sort of given up a little bit. Um, and But nevertheless... Well, I, I sort of started to think, well, what's the impact of this going to be? Of course, the fact that it's a commercial company rather than an academic group, in a way, was quite disappointing um, because I know the academics and I would have very much, uh, you know, wanted them to succeed. But also one realised, you know, this company had access to a lot of compute and access to people who were real experts in machine learning at the forefront of that field. And so it really, um, I was just pleased overall. And I thought this would have a beneficial effect on the field. Now, perhaps I should hand over to David at that point, and he can have his more on oh. the ground view. So yeah, my yeah. view is very much sort of high level and don't don't look at the details, and David obviously knows all the nitty gritty details. I mean, I I I kind of look at it, I guess, more from someone who's working in that field. I mean, I should say, you know, I I, I worked with DeepMind on the first iteration of AlphaFold, so you know, I kind of it, so I wasn't surprised. You know, if I would have put very good money on DeepMind winning the next CASP experiment, that that wasn't at all surprised. I didn't think anyone had caught up uh, at that point in the field, so it wasn't surprising that they were at the top. Um, obviously, the gap, you know, the kind of the jump between the second place group and the first place group was a bit of a shock, I'll be honest with you. And so, you know, and, um, you know, and it, you go through different emotions. I mean, obviously, first of all, it wasn't a surprise because I kind of knew, I, I mean, the amount of improvement was a surprise. Um, I, initially, it was such a big jump that, and again, this is something that's been racking my brains on this, I think, as, as a field we all have is that I expected there to be something in what they did that was something we just hadn't thought of doing. In the sense, you know, I just thought they'd found a new source of information or some new, because a few years back, um, probably it shouldn't be forgotten, I guess, the biggest jump that really happened methodologically was this looking at the covariation sequences, looking at multiple sequence alignments of related sequences, and then looking at, at correlations between different positions. And that's still part of AlphaFold too. I mean, that is still core to what it does. It, it, without that, it can't work and it doesn't work. And that's quite clear from the data that they've shown and other people have shown. So it's still dependent on this information. And a number of groups, um, you know, Chris Sander, Debbie Marks, my, my, my group and a few other groups were kind of involved in that 10 years ago now. It seems like it's a shocking, it's amazing that that's, that's 10 years ago now. Um, and it was clear that that was the direction in which a, a, a working solution would come from. I mean, it was clear that pushing hard along that line, I don't want to take credit, you know, saying, oh, it's all down to me. And it's my, because, you know, I, one of the reasons I, 
I thought it was interesting to work with DeepMind because they didn't know about this, 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 this work going on themselves. And you know, one of the things that we discussed when I worked with them was this, these new developments. And it was, I felt one of the reasons for doing it is I felt that it probably could be pushed a lot further than, than the academics had pushed it. I mean, we tried our best, but I, I did feel we were compute constrained. And I, you know, I, I went to them saying, well, it would be really interesting to know what you what you could be able to do here if we weren't constrained by compute. You know, what you know, what uh, what would happen with that? Um, so, you know, that that I think wasn't that that was kind of you know the background to that, I suppose. So it wasn't surprising that they would push it forward. What I hadn't realized, I guess, was you know that that essentially no new information was needed to get that level of improvement. And that was a shock. Now, I'm still processing that a bit, really, that ultimately AlphaFold 2 is the same thing that everyone else was doing, but in a new kind of framework, a new way of kind of representing that information and allowing it to mix. You know, it's, that, it's, the, it's the key that, you know, you're bringing everything to play to get that solution that you want. And I guess none of us had really appreciated how powerful that was. And that was a shock. Uh, so I was expecting, I think we all were expecting, we saw these great results, we all went into shock, but we all went away saying, yeah, they haven't told us something there. You know, there's something they haven't told us at the meeting. There must be something they're holding back that's, you know, that they've come up with a, ah, we've, a clever trick that we've found. A bit like the covariation that, you know, that was worked on 10 years ago. They'd found a new type, a new source of information that we hadn't seen before to make that huge leap. But it's turned out, as far as we know, that doesn't exist. It's still basically just doing what we were already doing, but so much better in a more principled way, I guess, in a more, in a more, um, in a more uniform way. It's bringing all the information together and weighting it correctly to make these predictions. And so that was a, that's, that's taken some recalibration of my thinking along. You know, we didn't need anything else. We could have done it. And so that, in theory, academics could have done it. I don't think the expertise in machine learning wasn't available, but we wouldn't have, we certainly didn't have the compute power to go through the number of experiments needed to get that to work in the way that they've done. And that's not to denigrate what they've done. It's just the difference between the way that academia works in you know, one postdoc and a project with the resources you can get from one grant and what you can do when you can leverage both the, you know, the skills and the compute, which is they're both important, to basically tackling all parts of the problem at the same time, and I, you know, I, and that's not, you know, it sounds maybe that's I don't mean that to be negative. It's just the difference in the way that things are working. So I, I suspect we would have eventually got to a similar solution in academia, but I think it would have taken them ten years. Um, so I think they, you know, I, I, it maybe still been a slightly different solution, but I think the same machine learning would have come through, but we would have had faster computers. And so we could have done that with the resources that we've got at the universities and we wouldn't have had to rely on, on, that, uh, on that. But that's just a guess. I mean, maybe it would never have happened. I don't know. It's always impossible to But to, I, I to also that. think, David, they did a very thorough job in that they included, they improved, as far as I can tell, um, homology modelling and the accuracy of sidechain placement, et cetera, as well as the, the sort of basic. Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you, Janet. I guess I've been looking at it. it it's All I'd say is unclear at the moment how, okay. how true that yeah. is, because it, we've been doing lots of experiments with AlphaFold 2 now ourselves, 
and yeah. the side chain aspects don't seem to be as important. And that, that was my guess. My original yeah. guess was by dealing with the side chain atoms in a, in a very accurate way, they're able to get this extra. All I can say at the moment, I'm not convinced. It may be that's true, but I'm, yeah. I'm, we're seeing some results that suggest it's not as easy as that. It, I, I thought that was my best guess that, you know, yeah. if, we ha- if we don't have the side chains there, um, but it turns out, you know, for example, you can get AlphaFold 2 to build a very good model with all the residues set to tryptophan, for example. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it does, it's not just the side chain packing that gives it, but I, that would have been my guess. I, and I'm not saying it isn't that, but, you know, at the moment, yeah. um, you know, it's early days. We've only had the program in, you know, for, for a short yeah, time in sure, our hands. Sure. It's not as crystal clear as it was perhaps uh, as I thought it was. Yeah. And you obviously yeah. thought it was, I think. Uh, but I may be wrong on that. Well, but... I, we, but I think we can say that the accuracy, however they got it, I don't really understand how they got it, but the accuracy, even for those homology models, seems to be better yes and i think that's and that's really what's important in terms of using those models for example in tomographs or in em data or whatever no no no. i i I, absolutely i wasn't disagreeing with that point that it's it's better across the board but what's not i'll give you the alternative possibility is that it's doing homology modeling but at at an ultra fine level in other words it's not just taking a homologous structure and then building the side chains on and then moving the loops around. It's taking little pieces of everything it needs from the whole of PDB yeah. and building an ultra, you know, like the jigsaw puzzle of the, 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 yeah, the worst jigsaw puzzle in history made yeah. up of <laughs> tiny little pieces of, of, yeah. of, the, of the jigsaw that, that yeah. you know, um, and that's my, that's kind of what I feel is at the heart of it. But the side chains, and the trouble is everything helps. I mean, it all, it all comes, you know, it's hard to eliminate any yeah. part of it. But I initially thought that the only thing that we hadn't been doing was the sidechain modeling. And now I'm not so sure that's really all there is to it. I, I, I think more well, is that, happening. The sidechain modeling is no good without getting the backbone right. Well, that's true. As you say, they are all so intimately intertwined. Yeah. And that's, to me, what this throw it all in together has yeah. given us. Everything's I mean, helping you know. each other. Yeah. But, you know, I, I mean, I'm looking at it from too fine and low, you know, so, you know, for example, you know, it still makes mistakes inside chains that, you know, need to be fixed yeah. by another program, for example. And so, so it, it's not like it has a perfect idea of what yeah. the side chains look like. Yeah. Um, I, I have to say, David, in my head, I think of it as an infinitely clever cut and paste algorithm. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, and, that, and that's, again, that's not denigrating it. That's that, that, no, that it's not. probably the most accurate description you can make of it. That's the. I'm sure that's sort of what it's managed to do. Oh yeah, that's I, I mean, why it's so it's, good at all sorts of data. It can always find indeed. those details. And I think I think we all kind of knew that a bit because people had often said, you know, in homology modeling that you know that the pieces are there. You know that yeah. you, you can always yeah. find a piece of yes. a protein yeah. to model every piece of every other protein essentially. Yes. And the problem was that we didn't have any. You know, we tried, as you know. Uh, Finding the right bits. That's an idea that we had back when I was doing a PhD, taking yeah. little fragments of proteins and joining them together, and and that's yeah. had a big that had an impact early on, particularly from David Baker's work. That you know yeah. we, we kicked it off, but then David's you know produced Rosetta, and you know and that that was a big change. But that was I that was our idea of what small fragments of proteins looked like. Yes. What yes, AlphaFold can do exactly. is it can think in higher dimensions. 
So it can not just say this linear piece needs to be added to this yeah, linear piece, yeah. but it can model interactions between you know, disparate pieces and it can solve yeah. a, a hyperdimensional yeah. jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. I know you like jigsaw puzzles, Janet, in your, in your previous Ooh, uh, discussion. Yes, but, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's like a fractal jigsaw puzzle, isn't that's it? Yeah, good, that's great. We'll go, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with a fractal jigsaw puzzle. That's what you know. But, um, a fractal jigsaw puzzle? Janet Thornton and David Jones were having a grand time explaining their thoughts and blowing my mind. And as they spoke and went back and forth, I wondered how we might illustrate this story. What the heck does a fractal jigsaw puzzle even look like? I asked them to explain this mathematical concept a little bit. Mathematically, it's not fractional dimensions, I suppose. It's, no. it's, a, it's, no. a, it's, a, it's just higher dimensions, really. But it's, it's solving the problem not just in two in three D as we uh, you know or in fact in we solve it in homology modeling in two D really we just look at the alignment yeah, and we just get absolutely. linear pieces to fit together and then going further you try and model it in three D but alpha fold is representing it in in higher dimensions and then bring it back to three D at the end and I think that's why it's it's solved the problem in that sense it's it's finding the right pieces amongst all the Ooh. higher dimensional space that it represents it in and that's a that's why machine learning was so important for that, because that's what machine learning does. Yeah. You know, it finds higher dimensional representations of the data that you're processing. And without that, I think it would have been very difficult to have, to, have, to, have, to have solved the problem that way or that well. David Jones consulted for DeepMind as a temporary contractor. And he recalls before he even started this relationship, how he discussed the field of protein structure prediction more generally with the DeepMind team. You know, I mean, so I, I was called in after they'd already thought that maybe this is something they could look, you know, so it, it wasn't, I, I think they hadn't planned. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I'm not giving any secrets away here. It, it wasn't clear from the beginning whether they could do anything. I mean, that's, that, that, that was quite clear. Yeah. And quite a lot of my work with them was really about exploring that to see, you know, what could be done. The AlphaFold team was a participant at CASP 13 in 2018, and the team won. The margin by which the team won at CASP 2020 was much larger. Here's David Jones from University College London. I, I mean, I was hired as a consultant to, to, you know, to work on this, but, but we had a long conversation before I signed any, anything, uh, you know, just discussing the field in general. And, just, and, and, and I did say to them that I felt that, 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 to be honest with you, my original impression was that anybody with a lot of compute power could, could do better in this, in this area, that that was a limitation. Um, obviously, I hadn't at that point factored in how much you could get from the machine learning aspects of it, which is which was you know I think I've been using machine learning as Janet knows a long time right through my PhD uh, days, but I hadn't you know I, at that point I hadn't caught up perhaps with the state of the art of that field at that point, and I hadn't realised how further it had gone from the machine learning that we were doing, and that and I said to DeepMind at the time, you know I don't you know I, I said to them you know even before we discussed that you know their ideas in protein structure were a bit not quite there didn't weren't up to date but their machine learning was a way ahead of anything that we were doing at least I was doing in, in bioinformatics certainly in bioinformatics I, I can't speak for my colleagues in, in AI and machine learning they may have known all about this already but in bioinformatics I felt that the machine learning that they were telling me about was at a higher order than anything that we were doing I, I think we've caught up a bit now I think generally I think the field is has now embraced this. <laughs> but part of that is due to AlphaFold, actually, that, that it's really made people appreciate yeah. the power of the new yeah. machine learning. 
An important aspect that drove the CASP-14 jump was the way AlphaFold tackled the challenge of protein structure prediction. David Jones and Janet Thornton will talk about this next. In 2017, Google brain scientists presented at the Conference on Neural Information Processing Systems, and they published their approach in a paper called Attention is All You Need. It plays a role in the big jump that AlphaFold 2 took at CASP-14. The big difference was, you know, is this idea of, of, of call, you know, of using language modeling. So, or, or specifically, this self-attention model of allowing, you know, of building these models um, that have been used in other, you know, very to do amazing stuff in, in natural language processing. But at that point, the bioinformaticians hadn't got hold of that technology. But to be honest, in fairness to us, it didn't really exist at the beginning. You know, so this this is, you know, this famous paper that came from Google, which said attention is all you need. Um, you know, has, has, has had a, a you know, huge impact in terms of not just bioinformatics, you know, AlphaFold 2, but in just about everything. So now in machine learning, the only thing people really want to discuss is some new variation of, of attention models. And, and so it's not the case that we didn't, we weren't up to date on it. There wasn't anything to be up to date on, really, um, in fairness, at the beginning of the previous CASP experiment. So this development, you know, and this is not making excuses for us in academia, that this technical development happened essentially between, not quite, because it doesn't never, nothing ever quite fits, but to a, to a large extent, the excitement in computer science in this area actually spanned CASP 13 to CASP 14. And so, you know, although I think, as far as I can tell from DeepMind's own papers, they were working on this before, in, probably before CASP 13 happened, it's not like we were completely oblivious to it like two years before that. No one was doing it two years before Castless, including DeepMind. I mean, you know, it just wasn't on the on the map. So in that sense, you know, it's been a rapid, a rapid flash of of, of technology development that's happened in, in the same time. So it's a perfect storm, if you like, of you know, of of, of bioinformaticians. And I, I I'm just make, you know, I'm just trying to defend ourselves that you know it looked like you know we'd all been spending 30 years staring at the wall. Uh, you know, doing doing nothing, and DeepMind came along and knew all about this for years. And and uh, you know, it it literally wasn't on the map back in 2016. You know, no one was doing this, even in, in machine learning. And it's only now, and it's amazing what happens in four years or five years, that now it's the only thing that people can think of or do, both in AI and machine learning, to be honest, and also in uh, in, in in bioinformatics and in, in you know in protein structure. And now everyone's doing it because it's so powerful. And it's, it's, it's basically, it's the ultimate generalization of a neural network. This is why it's so effective here, that it, 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 people call this inductive bias. It's basically, it's, it's how much your, the, the kind of equations you're using in the, in the machine learning biases the predictions you make. So if you make assumptions on your data that are inherent in your model, it means you can only make more, yeah, outputs that fit those, those constraints. So, before we were all using convolutional nets, which are very good at images, at 2D things. And so obviously everything it predicted was 2D, and then we turned it into 3D. But these attention models just essentially work, you know, so at such a fine-grained level, they can just mix data across all the data you feed in. They can mix it up in any way necessary to solve the problem. And without those constraints on the model, it makes neural networks so much more powerful. And so, you know, that was a that's been a big jump up, you know, we've had to uh, learn a lot quickly. Um, but, you know, as of my colleagues in computer science, you know, it's not something that, 
you know, that was known for 10 years before, and then it's only now that us bioinformaticians are catching up. Um, this really was relatively new technology. It's, it's, it's certainly within the last less than five years, that's for sure, this, this technology became um, apparent. One issue that comes up in discussions with scientists about AlphaFold is, is it science or is it engineering? The discussion becomes intense about what AlphaFold does. It becomes a bit philosophical in a way, too. Here's Dennett Thornton first, and David Jones joins in on the subject of science and engineering. What, what it does is to predict protein structure coordinates, and that's all it does. It doesn't tell us anything about the protein folding pathway at all. It isn't able to fold up a protein as nature does, where you have one sequence and it folds up. So it doesn't inherently, um, in that sense, it's not a scientific approach. It just learns from what it's seen. But in my mind, a lot of science is exactly doing that. We see things and we learn from it and we use that then to make predictions, the weather forecasting. Is, is a perfect example. And then gradually, um, you know, things like oh, Coulomb's law and all the electrostatics and the physics of protein folding in a way is captured in this neural net. I mean, it, it, so although it doesn't answer many questions and in many ways it is a technology, for me, Looking at data and abstracting knowledge from that data is, is part of what science is about. And it, it takes different forms. And this is kind of a high level technical form of, of exactly that. David Jones had to step away from the conversation for a moment, so he didn't hear what Janet Thornton said about the question, is AlphaFold science or is it engineering? Spoiler alert here, he, you know, no spoilers. Here's David Jones on that question. Well, it's, it's an argument that um, you know, it's always tricky because you know I I I have a joint appointment where I work, and I actually so I work in both an engineering faculty and a science faculty, so I, I have to be careful um, so that I don't say one the wrong thing to the wrong people or anything like that. So you know the thing is you can't. I think what's coming apparent is that you can't do the science without the engineering. And, you know, so you can't really say this is all engineering or this is all science, because if you have the, if the science is wrong, it doesn't matter how good your engineering is, but then it, the science can be right. And if you have bad engineering, you're not going to get the right answer. So I, I do see it from both sides. And I don't think AlphaFold 2 would have appeared if they were just good engineers or it was just down to engineering and there wasn't some scientific input, um, you know, from whoever, wherever it came from, you know, from, from various people who contributed to that. But it, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult one because, you know, in one case, engineering makes things a reality and the science kind of paves, you know, builds the foundations on which that happens. So nothing useful happens without engineering. But then if the science isn't done, there's nothing to engineer. There's nothing that, you know, there's no, there's no underlying um, thing to build on. So it, it's, I, I can't separate it in my head, really. Um, you know, I, I, AlphaFold 2 wouldn't have existed with, and, and deep mind invest, you know, have very good, I met a number of them, and they're excellent people, what they call research engineers, whose job is to engineer the solutions and, and find the best way of solving from a highly technical perspective, whatever the scientists, but they don't treat it like, you know, that the engineers, and that's always the thing I always try and 
avoid people thinking that the engineers are kind of the because in science we do have this thing about you know technicians versus academics and, and research and, and this thing you know and it, and it and they've got I think I had a very nice way of looking at it that we're a team trying to solve this problem and the scientists do this bit of it the engineers do this bit of it sometimes they cross over and sometimes they you know and I think that's the key I think it's a label that gets misused as, as a kind of pejorative really that people say you know oh, it's just engineering um I, it's amazingly hard to do really good you know I, I one of the things you know i've been writing i still write my own code and i'm still in, in awe of people who engineer large software systems that work and, and, and are reliable um it's incredibly hard it's, i mean I, I, it's hard to say whether it's harder or not than science because it's just different science is more inspiration based it's more ideas based you know you have a flash of inspiration but it's it's it doesn't help to have a great idea if you can't realize it in a form that actually solves the problem and that's where you know, I think that's what you need both for. So I'm going to, I'm sitting on, on the fence completely on that in the sense. So did I, David, but slightly different r- rationale. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, David Jones completed his PhD research with Janet Thornton. And this phase in their lives came up as they talked about science and engineering. Yeah, David is totally exceptional in this respect, I find. Um, you know, some people, when you have many students, you get all sorts. You get people really who are um, brilliant programmers. And David is in, he might not think he is because he knows better than I do. But to me, he was always one of the, the best programmers and implementers and engineer producing things that worked and people could use. On the other side, you have people who have all these ideas and it never comes to anything useful because they don't do the engineering. So in my mind, David is is this. Um, it's nice to research, it. The um, trouble is, I you know yeah. I kind of beat my match a bit really these days because the biggest <laughs> problem is that the prop is that the engineering scale is so much larger. So you yeah. know the, you know I understand I think now most of how AlphaFold works, but I can't imagine ever putting it. You know I mean the the difficulty of putting it all together. And actually having a sensible result coming out at the end of it is, yeah. is, is almost unimaginable, even to me, even though I, you know, I, I, I do still program myself. Yeah. But, you know, and obviously now it, they've told you how to do it. So it's, it is, but, but to have been the first people to put all those bits together, I mean, that's the bit, yeah. I, that's the li- bit I least understand is, you know, like how many iterations of the model there were and at what point did it work? I and mean, we heard from Dennis as well, that it, it, got worse at some point you know that he started yeah. off you know that they went backwards for quite a long time and then yeah. it started going and that's yeah. the kind of process that I think is very interesting to know and I I wasn't working with them I would love to have been working with them and just to see that process happening and to see how that how that um, great result emerged because it must have emerged you know I don't know whether it suddenly emerged you know just gradually it was just every day it was one percent better and then they just you know or was it just going and then suddenly it shot up you know like the like a like a like a stock price or something like suddenly there's a massive improvement and then maybe it's stopped so you know it's just the 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 shape of that process of the engineering process that arrived at that result i think would be very interesting to know more about and i hope they tell us that story i mean hopefully they will perhaps tell us that in, in talks or whatever in the future this process the making of and the alpha fold system itself might have lessons for other areas of biology such as perhaps neuroscience or it will matter for other areas of science too, such as chemistry and other fields. David Jones explains his observation that many are now looking for their, as he calls it, alpha fold two moment. 
we, we want to know what the process is. You know, we, we'd like to know. I mean, we may not be able to do it on such a large scale, but I think the, I think the, I think the, what's the right word for it? The frame, not the framework, but the kind of um, philosophy of what they've done, I think could be applied to many, and I've told this to Janet many times, could be applied to so many other problems in biology and chemistry and, and medicine and other areas. It's not always going to be so easy because you don't always have the, I'm sure Janet said this, data sets available and things like that. There are lots of reasons why it can't be done or even a metric to tell you whether your result is better than the other result. I mean, that's another factor. But I do think this way of engineering a, a, a solution that has the power of taking everything into account and then just optimizing the final, whatever it is, benchmark number or something, you know, is a very powerful concept. And I think, you know, we're, we're all going to be thinking along those lines. I think for everything now, I think everyone is looking now for an alpha fold two moment in their favorite area of biology or, or you know, and, and probably other areas of science as well. Because it, and it will happen, I think, but not all the time, because I don't think every problem is as well posed. You know, we don't have the metrics and we don't have the data sets available. But if and when that happens, this does offer, I think will offer a way of similarly shooting the performance upwards. I think that would be interesting. But I mean, areas like medicine, there's a lot of work needs to be done in both getting the data sets sorted out to the right level of quality and also getting the um, deciding on what the actual thing is that you're trying to improve. You know, I, I, is it, you know it's, it's hard to, if you're trying to diagnose something, it's hard to put that into a, into a formula, into a, into a neural network to optimize it. So just trying to say, you know, I want to treat a patient. What do you mean numerically? What is, a, what is better treatment for this patient? And because then you force the person to say, put it in terms of one number. You know, I want to know one number that says that this drug is better than this drug or this treatment is better than this treatment. And that's hard to do in many areas of, of, of science and biology in particular, I think. One aspect I brought up with Janet Thornton and David Jones is how are they telling their students and trainees about AlphaFold? How will they be integrating this into their teaching and mentoring? What do they think is the most important aspect about understanding this method? Well, that's a good question because I, you know, I'm starting to plan my teaching for next year now. And, so, you know, and, uh, and I have made the decision I am going to try to teach our biology students how AlphaFold 2 works, for example, in, in, in the kind of, in a, some, at some level, but that's not gonna be at the level of, of them being able to implement it. I, I, you know, I, I, we all use tools. You know, I, I, I use an iPhone, I don't, you know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you how to build one. I couldn't, you know, or you use a mass spectrometer or whatever, you understand the basic principles, but you couldn't solve all the engineering and technical problems to actually get one to work. So lots of things we use, we don't have to understand them in that level, but it's working at, it's working at what that level is for it to be useful in your in your work. So how much do they need to know? I think it's more how Janet's probably got more to say on that, but I think it's it's understanding the limitations of the results and the data. And that's what I feel the most important thing to get across is to get enough of an understanding of the method so you understand when it won't work or what or how well it's going to work and how you know how much confidence you can have in it. And I think that's um, that's I think going to be very interesting. And I think the work that EBI has done of making the data available is the first step to that because it just shows everyone a very global picture of, 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 of what the range of, of data is. This specific alpha fold too, but of course that's any area of science. I guess you talk, you say that. Talking about how they are going to teach others about alpha fold brought them back to memories about how proteins are 
for some, not for them, mind you, but for some, proteins are just blobs. What is a protein structure is the first question, I think, um, to, to actually try that. Yeah, and that sounds very, very rude to say that a lot of biologists, but, you know, I've had, I've had colleagues early on in my career when I was working on a structural bond, you know, when I got my first job, independent job, and he just said, I don't need to know anything about protein structure. As far as I'm concerned, they're just blobs that do some do things and they stick to other blobs. And that's all I need to know. And I, you know, and I, it, it was hard to it was hard to kind of row back from that, you know, to argue back from that. But that and I, and I don't think that's the opinion of every biologist in the world. But it is it is an issue that, we've, that I think and Janet would be pleased about this, I suppose, is that, you know, um, understanding goes back to you know, my PhD with, her, I guess, thinking, looking at protein structures. And trying to make sense of them and what, and what they tell you about biology and the mechanism and the, and that's that I think this is now I think AlphaFold is telling us how little <laughs> how much progress we need to make on that area if you ask me that is uh, that's yeah. a bottleneck now I think and that's going to be uh, but I I think I mean I wouldn't want us to not mention the impact that this will have on experimental structure determination hmm. especially in the um, cryo electron microscopy and in the tomography and being able to look in a cell and see blobs and then work out what blobs they are whether it's a ribosome or something else and at the moment the resolution is rather well infinitely higher than it was many a few years ago but it's still relatively low but I I really think that that is going to change. And these models really can be used to help to identify what this particular blob is. <laughs> and, and that's already nearly all the people, all the, over the last few years, most crystallographers has be, have become electron microscopists and they're looking at bigger complexes bigger sets or they're doing the electron tomography and for this it's a bit like image recognition you know you get a blob and you say well which protein is this and can I fit these coordinates into this blob and does it give me data and there's already a lot of evidence that that's quite powerful hmm. so I think that to me that is the very first impact that this has had because of course it's the structural biologists who are most interested in these structures. Oh, absolutely. I think that's changed, you know, yeah. but, but I think, but what's interesting, I think what's useful about that a little bit is that I think, you know, in structural biology, I would argue too much time is spent on the technology, you know, it's worrying about, you know, and I think it's once with all these models and with the improvements yeah. this, it's time for us to go back and say, why are we solving these structures? Yeah. And what can we get out of these structures? Uh, and I think that's, I think this has sharpened the focus on that. And I think that's something, you know, harks back to my early days. And I guess when we were, it was clearer, I think, in our head why we were doing it. And then it all became, you know, got, got distracted by other things, you know, other technologies and other, you know, increasing the volume of data and things like, you know, trying to solve more structures. And ultimately, it still comes down to the fact that, you know, once these blobs do become, become realized in 3d and you can actually see the atoms and can actually see there you've then got the problem of now what do you do with it i mean and, and that, that i think is that's really no. that's keeping that's keeping me you know thinking at night about what do you, you know, what are we going to do with all this stuff now i think that's the thing yeah so in fact uh, going back to a bit of history 
um, when David was consultant, um, the Deep Mind people came up to see me at EBI. Do you remember? Yeah, I do. And, and all they wanted to know was if we could do this, what would you use the structures for? That was their only question. Mm. And we went through different things that you could do, which haven't changed, frankly, okay. and are still mostly quite difficult. And they yeah. don't fall in this nicely defined problem area of, um, you know, and there are there are many parts of biology where you where actually a blob is enough. Yeah. <laughs> For some scientific questions, a blob is enough information. For other questions, higher resolution is needed. Janet Thornton points out how having the human proteome is making her think differently, and that may happen to others too. With protein structure prediction, given that AlphaFold is here, it's not like all the work on proteins is done. I asked what priorities they see next for studying proteins. Obvious stuff that everybody has said now. It's looking at protein-protein interactions, it's looking at protein DNA, it's looking at protein small molecule interactions, it's drug design, it's it's looking at forming these big complexes and how they can operate and all the, you know, how 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 these enzymes are distributed in the cell is also a very interesting question. Um, but so having, if you like, a complete proteome, I think makes you think differently. If you think about when we have the complete genome, I know I when the, the human genome paper came out, I thought, wow, this is amazing. Because back, back in the day, I never even thought that that would happen, you know, anytime soon at all. Um, and once it came out, I read the paper and, and the paper wasn't interesting to me because it didn't cover any of the things that I was interested in. But it made me think wow, human beings really only have 20-odd thousand proteins. I mean, that is amazing. You know, and flies have got 16,000, you know, or 15,000, and it's just amazing. And, of course, the complexity comes through all these interactions and trying to understand those. And that is quite difficult if you don't have protein structures, actually, because the interactions are all driven by the proteins. It's not always easy if you have them. <laughs> well, it's difficult if you've got them, but it's impossible if you don't have them, David, I think. But, uh, um, you know, it doesn't answer the protein folding problem, how these things fold up. It doesn't answer the flexibility. I mean, I've always thought we know these structures, even in the crystals, these things are very, very flexible. And yet these structures do explain a lot of what proteins do. You know, if you look at a catalytic site, you can see, even though you know that it's still flexible, it still gives you an insight into what's going on. And yeah. so, and that to me has always been a surprise. So rather than saying, oh, this crystallography, it only gives you snapshots and it's irrelevant. To me, the amazing thing is these snapshots are really informative in terms well, yes. of the biology. You know, it is just amazing that Particularly they because are. you can actually control the experiment. You can actually do what-if experiments. You know, you yeah. can actually say, you know, what happens if it if you crystallize it with this other chain? Or, you know, what happens if you, you know, if you crystallize it with this ligand bound? And that's what, you know, at the moment, machine learning struggles with. It struggles with, the you know, it gives you the best average guess, 
as to yeah. what the protein looks like based on sequence information alone and yeah. what it's seen in PDB, but it can't it can't tackle the what if experiments that you really want to do in biology to make sense of it. And that's well, it where doesn't, it doesn't deal with it can't deal with the variance and interpretation. Oh, that's another factor, indeed. Yeah, to, yeah. the variance. I mean, it can tell you, oh, this is close to the core of the protein or the active site or whatever. It can tell you that, but it can't actually predict whether it's going to be benign or. Indeed, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it just takes one one mutation, the protein won't fold. You know, yeah. that's all it all it all it needs. You know, it's, yeah. it's very borderline stability, you know, so essentially the wrong mutation, the wrong place, and the protein simply won't fold. But alpha fold won't see that because it will just yeah. see one small change in a set of, let, you know, in a set of residue, amino acid letters that it's been used as an input. And it doesn't change its, its, its thinking at all on what the protein looks like. It just yeah. goes, that looks like the protein I've seen before. But that particular position in that particular is, you know, unknown because it hasn't seen all the variants you know it hasn't been trained in all the variants it doesn't it's never seen an unfolded protein in training you know, it's never been shown a protein that doesn't fold it only sees the ones that do and so it has no idea of how changes affect yeah. the crucial aspect of protein stability which is kind of you know what it all comes down to really yeah. it's all sense. down to delta delta g yeah, <laughs> it all comes down to that absolutely it all comes down to that very sadly free energy Delta Delta G is essentially an energy difference between a protein and a version of that protein that has a mutation. It's slightly different, so there's an energy difference between the wild-type protein and the altered one. Alterations in proteins play a role in diseases and disorders, which brings Janet Thornton to the clinical realm and the role AlphaFold might play there. I would just like to come back to the clinical, because although I agree with David, that the excitement in the AI field has been building for the last five years. And people are aware, I mean, just with facial recognition and, you know, voice record, all these things, we all know. But to have it, and I think this is what Demis wanted, to have it solve a, a scientific problem that had been a problem, to show its power. And I think that's what they've done by choosing this and very cleverly choosing a problem that is amenable to machine learning, which I think this is, but it really, to the bi biological and medical world, this begins to say, look what you can do with machine learning. Look how powerful it is to capture. And whilst I agree that diseases are infinitely complex, protein structures are pretty complex, actually. And if we had the data in forms that were, you know, this is what it, it really, I think in the medical field, it does come down to having the data organized properly, making it accessible whilst keeping it safe. And then to me, the opportunities in that field for helping the clinicians to do their work even better without just their own personal experience, but with all this data having been mined for what it can tell them about the likely trajectory of somebody's disease. I think it, it is immensely powerful. And, you know, I, I think that's, to me, that will be one of the main outcomes from AlphaFold, actually, just the, the appreciation of the power of this to, yeah. to answer deeply complicated problems. 
Well, I wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, I, I guess I, only for the kind of, you know, it's always good to have a, I guess, the opposite view a little bit. Yeah. Not, not from that, what Janet said, I absolutely agree with. But it's just to say, I think it may turn out that the protein folding problem, it's not really the protein folding problem, but the protein, let's say the protein modeling problem that they've tackled here, yeah. is, is, is probably the lowest hanging fruit of the scientific challenges that could have been. I mean, it sounds like, well, why didn't you do it before and throw it away? But it has every, it had everything going for it, I think, in many respects. And I, 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 I think Janet's absolutely right that it shows what could be done, which is always important. Having the confidence to go and try something is absolutely essential. But I still worry that a lot of thing, a lot of time could be wasted on areas where they're just not ready for machine learning yet, and they've got to slow down. And and you know, gather the data. <laughs> well, sort the data out. You know, it's, it's the biggest problem. You know, there, there have been papers coming out looking, for example, at the various diagnostic efforts with AI on COVID, for example, and looking at, at you know various various imaging techniques and and this. And it turned out that very little came out of that work because the data wasn't able wasn't just wasn't up to up to doing the job. It was contaminated in various ways and and too limited to small data sets that they couldn't exchange data. So it was lots of little studies. It's the usual thing that goes on in, in medical research. And so there's lots of perhaps even harder problems to solve than the protein folding problem to sort in the kind of philosophy and the and the way that the research is done and, and the, the data is handled. But I mean, Jan Janet's obviously had a, a first-hand experience of that with Elixir and things like that. But it's it's a, there's a lot of work there, I think, that gets underestimated. And I'm sure Janet would would uh, would agree with that. <laughs> yes, I think in that sense. yes, I'll certainly agree with that. But <laughs> yes, I, I just think... the elixir is the exchange, uh, the electronic exchange, right? The trans-European well, elixir is a pan-European infrastructure for biological data, and you know that uh, getting that established was dealing with scientists in twenty-five or whatever different countries and getting them to agree on things. And these are very difficult. And I think actually for the medical data is even more difficult because <laughs> in part because of the way the structure of, of medical research, but also the the need to keep the data secure. And so matching and being able to handle that is going to be really important. Yeah. But I I really uh, do think that there are enormous opportunities for, you know, new students and to to build on this in all yeah, sorts of different ways. And so I think it is really still. I'm still. I don't know. It gives me a spring in my step when I when I sort of think about it. I think yes. I'll put, know, I'll put it down. I'll put my point as, as extreme. You know, I, I would say it, it's extreme cautious optimism. I guess in terms of, uh, <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I, I do agree with Janet. You know, that I, I think we'll be It'll amazed at what time, gets done. David. Yeah. It, it will just take. It will time. take time. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I, one thing that worries me a little bit at the moment: things are going a bit too quickly. That too many things yeah. are happening. Uh, kind of, but, uh, kind of, lots. It's, it's it's width rather than you know. We're not really. Yeah. I, 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 I've joked in my group that I want to take two years off. You know, just sitting on yeah. a desert island somewhere, just to take account of what's happened and just try to think about where we go next, because I just don't feel there's time at the moment to even assess what's happened. And so it's, it's a difficult time. That's, that that's a, a completely different conversation that we don't yeah. have time for now. But, uh, you know, it, it, I think there's, there's a lot to be said for that, to be careful mm. um, and to go slowly mm. towards using this new technology. But, but it, it has power. Yeah, it does. 
when used correctly, it has a lot of power. And that, the mm -hmm. trick is to use it correctly and to get the right data to, to feed it. It's the old joke in computer science, well, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And so it's uh, that's and to, to ask the right questions. Absolutely. And what you realize yeah. is that science is about asking those questions that are feasible and doable. Yes. You know, and, and that that's the art of good science, timely science. And, and that's what we need in this case. That sounds absolutely fantastic. I, I, you know, that sounds like I couldn't say I couldn't say anything better than that Janet you summarized I think the uh, current situation perfectly I think it's uh, yeah it's fun it's it's science it's fun anyway and it's you know it's it's fun to talk about we've had some good conversations about. about it doing it is sometimes a bit a bit, a bit of a pain but uh, you know it is it's fun to, it is fun to sit down it's something we've missed I think more over the last couple of years for obvious reasons that we've had and I think that's one of the other things happened with Alpha Fold. I mean, everything's happened on zoom calls yeah. And I think, you know, in, in, in previous, in two years ago or three years ago, we would have had probably three or four conferences on it by now and then all sat around discussing it and yeah. throwing ideas around. And that's hopefully going, we're going back to that, hopefully. Um, but that we've missed that a bit. So it's, 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 it's all felt like we've been in limbo a bit with a big breakthrough um, and not had the, being able to get hold of it and discuss it and argue about it and, you know, all the usual <laughs> things that we do. <laughs> I take my science very seriously, but it doesn't mean you can't have fun doing it. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you, you have some fun, but you take the actual business of delivering reliable results seriously. And, uh, and that's, that's what it all comes yeah. down to. That's what Janet taught me. So uh, that was, uh, <laughs> I've, I've hopefully carried the talk since then. And, uh, yes, that side indeed, of things. David. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's guests were Dame Janet Thornton from the European Bioinformatics Institute, Dr. Thornton is the former director of the European Bioinformatics Institute. Among her many awards is one for her services to bioinformatics. She has been named Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire. I spoke with her and Dr. David Jones, who is on the faculty of University College London, with appointments both in computer science and in structural and molecular biology. And I just wanted to add, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, the European Bioinformatics Institute and University College London didn't pay to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism produced by me in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>